Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The history of American popular music often looks at the 1970s as an era defined by rock and roll, with disco as a sort of unfortunate side note. But that's revisionist. The decade was dominated by dance music that was repetitive, synthetic, and yes, a little bit cheesy. So what happened here? Why does disco have such a bad reputation, and what made it so popular in the first place? Just a heads up that I'll be using some short clips of songs in a fair use capacity in this episode, but with that in mind, let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Ethan Blesky. Hey. Welcome back. Hi. It's been a while. It's been a long time. You moved far away and now you've moved back closer and now we get to do this a little more often and I'm very excited about it. I'm the, I'm the cat who came back. I'm, I'm actually very excited that you're here. And we've decided today to talk about disco of all things. Yes. Which is a topic I've actually wanted to address for a really long time on this, uh, on this show. And... I've actually always kind of wanted to do it with you. You seem like the perfect <laughs> guest for it, and and I'm really excited that we have a chance to do it now. Now I'm not I'm not 100 sure I am the perfect guest for this because confession time. I've uh, never seen Saturday Night Fever. Neither have I, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Yes. <laughs> um, no, no, that's okay. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that you and I are not necessarily the ideal people to be talking about it, but we're gonna we're gonna make do with what we've got here. Yeah. We do both like music quite a bit, and I think a lot of what we're going to be doing is coming at it from that angle. Absolutely. Um, and and I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this because I think disco gets this weird reputation when it comes to how we look at it retrospectively, which is it's like this this singular like cultural event that happened and everyone would rather just not talk about it. <laughs> and, you know, if you know anything about disco, it's, you know, disco sucks. And it's, you know, like the, the literal like the buttons that say disco sucks. And, yeah. you know, the the, the chintzy disco polyester. Disco dead, and, all of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I think it's really doing a, a, a massive cultural movement a lot of disservice to yeah. remember it that way. Um, and so I, I'd really like to spend some time revisiting it. And the natural place, I think, to start with all of this is I want to talk a little bit about Celine Dion. Okay. Not where I thought we were starting, but all right. Specifically, a really interesting book about Celine Dion, written by a music uh, critic named Carl Wilson. Okay. He's a Canadian critic, grew up in Montreal, moved to Toronto, wrote a book for the 33 and a Third series. Are you familiar with this series of books? No, I'm not. So the 33 and a Third series is a series of books wherein each book is about one specific music album. And I've always really liked huh. the series in that sort of like you... 
you know, there's, there's over 140 of them at this point. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, you, you pick up one about your favorite album and you like read a bunch of stuff that you probably kind of already knew about it and maybe some new stuff. And it's kind of like, this is nice light reading. Yeah. Um, I had one about okay computer that I was very into for a long time, <laughs> like a little more than I'd like to admit, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Carl Wilson was given Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love okay. to write about. And Carl Wilson hated, hated Celine Dion as his tradition. <laughs> yeah. And what he decided to do with this book is instead of spending the entire book pretending that he liked Celine Dion and writing up a, you know, a, a puff piece about it. Yeah. Or even spending the entire time just slagging Celine Dion. Tearing her down. Yeah. He spends nearly the entire book examining what is taste interesting what is the place of music in taste what is cultural capital what is social capital why do people like the music that they like okay and it is absolutely fascinating fascinating it's one of the most riveting books on music i've ever read because it's a book that while on the cover is about celine dion it's actually about you know david hume and it's about uh you know like it's it's about all these ideas of like what how does objectivity work in an aesthetic environment? And okay. kind of the answer is like, it doesn't like you, you can't. Yeah. Right. And, and what he gets at is that as much as we like to think of our musical taste as very individualized. Yeah. In fact, a lot of us would consider it a, a core part of our personality. Yeah. Yeah. In reality, a lot of your musical taste could be predicted by feeding a number of factors about you into a computer and having it spit out probably these are the bands that you would like i mean spotify is basically <laughs> built on this model to yeah. some extent right? yeah absolutely and he takes it back to high school right okay. where it's kind of like you look at a person it's like oh you know what bands they like and like uh, those bands are very important to those people right yeah but you know it yeah and and you can you can kind of extrapolate it to a wider audience in a lot of ways right like who listens to country music um you can do this. You got it. Generally rural people or mm-hmm. people who grew up in a rural area. Uh-huh. Um, usually a bit more of a conservative slant. Sure. Um, ethnically. Ethnically white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's it's like, you know it, right? Like, yeah. you, you just, you have this, like, this, like, very, like, visceral, like, reaction to it. And you can get a little bit more specific. Like, let's talk about, you know, hip hop in the, in, in the mid 80s, right? Like, you're talking about very, like, urban uh young black men specifically yeah or if you talk about specific groups like the monkeys from the 60s right who's listening to that (laughs) uh it's it's white guys it's uh no girls girls right the guys hated the monkeys that's right we have one aunt who would be so mad at you right now i know (laughs) um no it's this like this idea of like pop music is like oh that's that's girl music right and yeah yeah while a lot of that is really easy to look at and be like, well, you know, let's not get to it's a it's a it's an outward social signal, right? Like it's bird plumage in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's it's a yeah. it's a way of, of telling the world like who you are. Yeah. Um, by claiming to like or not like different kinds of music. And the reason I want to talk about all of this is because I want to come around to a different question, which is who listens to disco or who listened to disco? Who is disco for? That's that that's a big one because it it did cross so many of those barriers that mm-hmm. that not as many not not as many as the ones that you listed do. Okay, well let's 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 try and like work through. Uh men or women? Both. Yeah. Ethnically speaking, 
white, mm-hmm. black, mm-hmm. Latinx mm-hmm. people. Um, Basically everyone. Yeah. Well. Economically speaking. Huge range. Massive again. range. Uh, sexual orientation. They're all over the place as well. Yeah. It's no one didn't listen to disco. Disco became one of the most ubiquitous types of music in the entire world. Yeah. Um, you know, there are exceptions here where in the ni- in, in the 1970s, you've got older people who are still listening to other variants of, of music. You have specific yeah. subcultures who are like holding very tightly onto their own preferred types of music. Absolutely. It's not as though everything else went away, but like you could find people from all of these categories in large numbers listening to disco. Disco yeah. was mainstream music for the 1970s. Yeah. So I want to kind of hold on to this idea of the ubiquity of disco as we move through this topic, who disco is for as yeah. we move through this topic um, and really keep it in the back of our minds. Awesome. Because, you know, the thing about mainstream music, especially, is that it, it makes it hard to track when you think about it. Like if you think of a movement like punk, right? You have people declaring themselves punk. Yeah. You have bands that are declaring themselves, they're, they're self-identifying as punk. Yes. Disco doesn't have that. There's no moment where disco is created. There is no, you know, patient zero <laughs> artist who is creating the first disco yeah. record. That yeah. doesn't exist. We have to look before the 1970s to look at the roots of disco, right? Do we want to talk about what disco is before we get going? Like what makes disco music disco? Uh, sure. Absolutely. You so, want to take a crack at it? Like he- heavily into dance. Like dance is a major feature of it. Disco is the only reason disco exists is for dancing. It's, it's because of dancing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it features synth more, occasionally. More later in disco, like closer okay. to the end of the 70s. But yeah, it, it is a feature more than some other genres for sure. Yeah. Soaring vocals. Yeah. Usually. Yeah, but the vocals are often like kind of not exactly ancillary, but like they're also not necessarily the most important part of the song, right? Okay. Big one is the four on the floor beat. Yeah, absolutely. Specifically with like bass on every beat. Um, okay. Bass drums. Um, you also have a lot of like syncopated bass lines that often like are in broken octaves. So let's it's like jumping from one octave to another. Okay. Yeah. Um, in in the bass line. A lot of the tracks are really long. Yes. Very, very long. And uh, strings. Yes. Strings are yep. Strings big. are big. <laughs> um, and so that kind of is like a really broad-ish <laughs> definition of how, how, how disco works from like a technical standpoint. But like, yeah. I think it's one of those things that like when you hear it, like, oh, you know, that's, that's disco for yeah. sure. In... 1973 this uh this music critic uh, uh vincelletti uh is writing for rolling stone magazine and he writes this uh this article called discotech rock party with five a's <laughs> and he talks about this new type of danceable r&b known as discotech rock okay and he's kind of like identifying it as this like hey this crazy new thing that the kids are into yeah and you know, by 1973, like, yeah, the mainstream was kind of starting to figure out that, like, this was a thing. Yeah. But, like, they didn't have the lexicon for it, right? They didn't know what to call it. The disco that exists at this point isn't actually disco or wasn't calling itself disco. Discotheque, by the way, comes from a French word. I Uh, I was about to say, are we going to talk about discotheque? French word. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a disc library, basically disc library, the same yeah. way as a, as a bibliothèque in in French is is a, a book library, basically. Yeah. The the music that the early discos are playing largely funk. 
Okay. Like largely funk, right? So when you look at the when you look at the the pop music scene in the 1960s, I think a lot of the time when we look back at the 60s, we think, oh, rock, right? Yeah. Psychedelic rock, uh, yep. pop rock, stuff like that. So you're thinking like the Beatles. You're thinking like the Doors. You're thinking like yeah. Jefferson Airplane, like that kind of like yeah, very like strong 60s sound. And if right? you're not thinking of that, you're thinking more folk. Folk sure. Rock, yeah, even. yeah, yeah. Bob Dylan, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Joni Mitchell, for sure. Joan Baez, yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. There's this idea of like um, very like political music, right? Yeah. But it's it's all very um, it, it's in that like hippie kind of tradition, <laughs> right? The, yeah. The free love, the, the late '60s type, you know, aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. But in reality, when you look at the charts, it's not exactly rock and roll that's like. A clear winner when it comes to what was actually charting in the 1960s okay a lot of what you're seeing is r&b yeah soul yeah funk soul especially okay um motown dominates the charts in the 1960s yes um they had 70 like the, the motown is a, a label by the way i think we yeah. t- kind of talk about it as like this genre of as music a genre when but yeah in reality it's just you know, it's it, it was a soul label yeah. that was very, very good at what it did. <laughs> they they had 79 top 10 hits in the 1960s. Wow. One label. Two, they, they, they released 537 singles in the 60s. Okay. Two thirds of them charted. Wow. It's That's insane. Unreal. Now, overall, music in the 1960s, and, and by the way, we're talking about North America uh, mostly here. I, yeah. I'm not nearly as familiar with the music scene and in Europe and it was doing very, very different things at this point in time. Yeah. And disco, it's going to end up worldwide, but like it, it is fundamentally like in its origins, an American okay. music style, yep. right? In the 1960s, what you see, and, and this isn't new to the 1960s either, is this trend of making black music palatable to white audiences, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is achieved in a number of ways like in the 50s you're looking at like just straight up appropriation you've got elvis presley just singing just taking yeah just songs from black songwriters Mm -hmm. and yeah redoing them well not really putting a whole lot of a twist on them really nope (laughs) um you also have um a lot of this like very like carefully managed image of black artists yes right this marketing of black artists i'm trying to remember who i think it was elton john described it as uh five five men in identical velvet suits right like this idea of like you know the temptations or the supremes like this this very like done up like sequin dresses or velvet suits kind of like as palatable as possible is is kind of i think the most generous way of of putting it that's a very good way of putting it yeah and so that's kind of the space that black artists inhabit for a lot of the 60s right Mm -hmm. while there are white artists that are making like explicitly uh political music like we talked about the you know protest songs and things like that you have you have these black artists singing uh i think it was stevie wonder uh called them baby 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 songs yeah yeah all right right yep in ways that are like coaching white audiences into you know understanding or appreciating the music um yeah doing things we we talked about this when we talked about the the uh 
the topic originally, but, you know, doing things like uh, opening the song with beats only on the two and four so that <laughs> white people know which beats to clap on. And this was like a thing that was like explicitly stated by black artists. Like yeah. Isaac Hayes, uh, the the uh, the artist who, who created the, the soundtrack to Shaft yeah. was basically like, yeah, everybody knows that they can't clap on two and four. It's yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, a lot of that goes back to folk music, you know, country, bluegrass, things yep. like that, where one and three are stressed. But it, it, it's a it's this it's this thing where like Motown was stressing these twos and fours, beating it, beating them over the head with it, I think was the way that Isaac <laughs> Hayes put it. Um, and you get stuff like, well, um, I, I struggled whether or not to play any music on this uh, episode. I think I'm yeah. just going to go for it. We'll figure out what to do if it ever becomes an issue. But <laughs> I was going to play. Well, the first one that we talked about was All Right by Stevie Wonder. Awesome. The other thing that you get out of the Motown is this like heartbeat type um, bass drum, the right? Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So boom. a really good example of that boom. is uh, My Girl, Temptations. Yeah. Uh, let's throw on like a tiny slice of that So this stuff is all like very like beat heavy, yeah. but like while it's kind of like, it is danceable, right? It's, yeah. it's not not danceable, <laughs> but it's not, it's also not like explicitly crafted only for dancing, right? Yeah. yeah Which is where sure. we're kind of going with disco. Yeah. Okay. You do also get, as the 1960s progress, you do get artists that start bucking that whole palatable trend Um, a really strong example being uh james brown right yes funk gets a little more um unapologetic with james brown yeah it's it's messier it's raw yeah it's it's raunchier it is a lot raunchier yeah and and a lot of the songs become more overtly sexual especially in the context of the 1960s and especially for a black artist singing them yeah because there's a lot of cultural baggage that goes along with all of that right Mm -hmm. it's it's very it's very risky for a black man to express this this type of sexuality in public Mm -hmm. because this is the sort of thing that has been put on them as a stereotype as 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 making them uh you know dangerous in society overall so this act of singing in this way or about these types of things become political in their own right which is yeah. a really interesting thing but also it's crazy good music <laughs> like, and and you know both of those things are really important but for disco how good the funk is becomes more important in a certain way okay i, I think a lot of people when they're talking about disco talk about ah it's too commercial ah, it's too vapid you know it's yeah. not it's not political you know they they spun away from the political you know it was, it was interesting when, when when songs had a message back in the 60s they don't anymore hmm. and it's kind of like yeah i think you're cherry picking your examples here <laughs> but also 
it's not as though disco stopped being political as the different things about disco become political. Okay. Now we're jumping ahead a little bit. I don't want to get too, too far ahead, but the other, you know, the, the other way that these songs become political is through some late sixties, early seventies funk from people like Isaac Hayes, who we already talked about this, this, yeah. the, the theme song or the, the, the soundtrack to shaft, which is, uh, the first black exploitation movie, which is this really interesting thing in, in culture where basically black people went, we're going to decide how we want to show ourselves on screen. Yeah which is a revolutionary thing, like mm-hmm. like an actual revolutionary thing, not the kind of thing that you say about just any movie. Well, it's revolutionary. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually like politically revolutionary yeah. in the context of the civil rights movement. Yes. Same thing with uh, one of my favorites, Curtis Mayfield, uh, doing the theme song of Superfly. Yeah. Right? There's some really good music in there. That's right. I love Curtis Mayfield, man. He's so good. But what you start seeing inside funk through especially these two uh these two artists is number one like an extremely socially conscious sensibility okay yeah. um you know it, the, these movies or the, these songs are very much about you know as we said in one way talking about how black people would like to see themselves but on you know on the other hand like, especially with uh, with superfly this sort of critical eye in a way that you can only turn on your own culture, which is this kind of like, man, there's some things we need to get sorted out. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, Curtis Mayfield is very uh, critical in his soundtrack of, of uh, you know, uh, gang life and things like that. Okay. Where yeah. it's kind of like, we, we can do better. It's, 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 it's criticism with an aspirational uh, uh, okay. yep. kind of bent to it. Yeah. Um, I want to play a little bit of Isaac Hayes because, number one, great song. Yes. Number two, I want you to listen to... Uh, what's happening in behind the guitars because disco guitars you get that like choked like they call it chicken scratch guitars right like yeah you you clamp down really hard and it's just that you get that really like strangled sound to it like it's not ringing out but there's something else going on on this track Okay, so what are we hearing on that that you're not hearing on early funk? I forgot how good the flute is. Sorry, just to interject that. The flute is so good. It's amazing. Yeah, but there's flute in there. Yeah. And a lot of strings. Yeah, lots of strings. Really lush strings. Yeah. And there's this turn towards this like wall of sound that's coming from like traditionally orchestral instruments, which is kind of interesting because traditionally yeah. funk is a very stripped down sound right Mm -hmm. like it's 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 your guitar bass drums like you want it like as tight as possible you might have a couple other things in there for emphasis but it's about the bass and the drums yeah 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 yeah. and james brown was the one that kind of pushes it in that general direction the bass and the drums right yeah but not not exclusively but he was a big driver of that but what you're hearing through isaac hayes is like this lush like composition and it's like there's something really interesting going on here. You've got a really hard beat, but like also this like fullness. Yeah. It's, it's so disco. <laughs> the fact that Isaac Hayes didn't end up being one of the biggest names in disco is, is, is just really interesting to me yeah. because I think he could have been if he wanted he to be. He definitely could have been. You know, I think when you look at music history, uh, at least in the, 
the collective consciousness of uh you know north america you think of of music in the late 60s very early 70s in this context of like psychedelic rock you know long hair yeah like these weird experimental things mm-hmm. a, a lot of the dance that would be involved is just like blitzed out of your mind free movement kind, kind of thrashing kind of like thrashy flowier not not great probably <laughs> but what's happening what's happening at that exact same time is these type of artists in funk and r&b that are working towards putting better and better beats mm-hmm. stronger beats into their stuff and making more danceable stuff. Yeah. And I think it really kind of hits a peak when you get to Barry White, who I know has this reputation of being like really cheesy, but like, well, let's put on a clip real quick. Okay. Girl, all I know is every time you're here, I feel a change. <laughs> Something moving. I scream your name. Why do people put that on at the end of the night? Like that is super danceable. It gets things going. (laughs) That's disco, man. That's totally disco. And it sounds like funk, right? Like you, you kind of parse it in your head as like kind of kind of weak funk a little bit it's like not very funky funk right like that's that's how it always came across to me at least yeah it's kind of like ah barry like where's the like where's the soul here yeah but when you listen to it it's like wait no that's not what's happening here no this is a song to dance to yeah totally and it's a song to dance close to oh yeah and it's well executed right like it's just got this like really like lush build in the strings yeah and it's got this really but the beat comes through like very very clearly like you cannot miss the beat you've got that 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 high guitar string uh for a little tension the like the thing the thing about dancing to funk is you can absolutely do it but the beat gets a little complex sometimes yeah and it's not a problem but it's not as accessible right okay yep you know there's lots of other stuff that's happening in in like music production in this era where it's like the technology is making some of this stuff a little bit easier to do. For example, tracking. So are, are we moving away from eight track at this point? Or are we... By the early 70s, you can get 64 tracks. 64 tracks. Incredible. Which is unreal because like the Beatles were recording on like four tracks. Like four tracks, yeah. Yeah, that, all, that, all that early Beatles stuff was like four tracks. Like once they were getting to like their weird, weird stuff at the very end, I think that was a 16 track machine that they had at Abbey Road. Yeah. I could be wrong. I'll probably have to check that one because I might get called out. <laughs> I but, know I know for sure I was just watching something on a Led Zeppelin song that was only on four tracks. So. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, those guys. Yeah, it, they, it was one of their later ones too, right. but like still. Yeah, they were a little behind the times. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when, when it came to the, the tech at least. But like that ability to mix to 64 tracks lets you do those strings. Yeah. You can't get those strings without that many tracks. No. It would degrade so badly if you were bouncing them. So badly. You also have like the introduction of the synthesizer, which gives you like new sounds. Um, It's really bad at the beginning of the 70s, but it's going to get much better as the decade goes along, as you mentioned. All of a sudden, producers are creating this music that's not necessarily able to be performed live. But the radio market has become so important that it doesn't matter that it can't be performed live because AM radio is giving you like enough 
to work with that yeah. if you mix all your stuff like really treble heavy yeah it'll come across am radio really nicely absolutely and lots of people who can't make it out to like live shows are listening to radio all of a sudden like that advertising market is really lucrative right yeah. and the thing that radio drives is seven inch uh singles yeah right Play to 45 RPM. Ugh. A single is usually about three minutes long because that's mm -hmm. good for radio play, but that also fits on the disc. You can get like up to five minutes if you really squeeze tracks on there, but yeah. like you don't want to do that. It'll skip for sure. Yeah. You know, these, these singles are selling better than albums in a lot of cases. We talk about the end of the 60s as like this golden age of like the concept record, you know, like Sgt. Pepper comes out, everybody's wild for it. I mean, only when you're the Beatles. Most yeah. people are listening to like, you know, they've, they've just got crates and crates and crates of 45s. Yeah, they, they're listening to the radio. They're listening to the top 10. That's what they're after. Yeah. Just that one song. It's yeah. not really that different than the way we're listening to radio, uh, to music right now. Yeah. Record labels also really love producer driven music. Yep. The 60s have seen this weird, uh, this, this anomalous swing towards the artist as having the power in a relationship. You have very strong uh names that are basically able to do whatever they want because of the cachet of their themselves yeah which yeah like you said super anomalous even from like the 30s on mm -hmm. right well the record labels don't want to deal with them they don't no. want to deal with stars they want to deal with session musicians yeah. who are competent come in get paid a very standard fairly <laughs> low rate and if they ever start getting delusions of grandeur are replaced by a different session musician and nobody ever knows they were there yeah that's what they want yeah, that's how this this industry works, right? Like it's a cold way of looking at it, but in that context, you look at somebody like Barry White and it's like, okay, well we can make this whole thing sound amazing, and the only person that we actually have to pay the big bucks is Barry. And like, Just, let's be real, if he was that much of a problem, that whole arrangement's still there. Yeah. We can just get somebody else just to come a in new and star. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, not a big deal. It's perfect for the labels, right? You know, when, when Vincelletti starts uh, talking about discotheque rock, they're in this weird kind of crossover spot in terms of the way that music is experienced in public. Because up until the early 70s, in a lot of ways, live acts are seen as preferable, right? Yeah. Like if you go to a bar and they don't have a live act, it's kind of like, what even is this bar yeah. doing, right? Yeah. The idea of going out to dance in the 60s had really waned. It's not as though no one ever did it. Yeah. But like it wasn't as important. Yeah. Culturally speaking, as it was in the 50s, or early 60s. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of DJing is like brand new, <laughs> especially in the United States. Like, yeah, you yeah. have, you know, dub music in Jamaica in the 60s that is yep. starting to play with like the double turntable system. Right. Yeah. But that is like cutting edge stuff. Yeah. Not really well known in the United States. No. So where is disco coming from why is this all of a sudden popular why are people all of a sudden interested in going out to dance to records and not to live music let's talk about the emergence of gay culture in the united states cool in the 19s in the 1950s and 60s there'd been a pretty hard crackdown on homosexuality in the united states yeah and we are talking mainly about the united states it's not really that different in a lot of other parts of the world but again focusing on disco here so let's kind of stick to a region okay um, a lot of what's happening in the united states also has kind of cultural cachet elsewhere in the world as well yes absolutely. a lot of places will uh follow the united follow states lead. lead yeah gay people in the united states are seen as very susceptible to blackmail yeah and we are in a cold war type situation but it's not really about that. It's also a lot more about, hey, we've just been through two really terrible wars. Yeah. And 
this return to normalcy that everyone's seeking involves a idealized version of of cultural norms and values the norman rockwell version exactly just doesn't really include lgbtq folk yeah there's lots of bad science that happens in the 1960s like so much bad science including including uh pathologizing homosexuality making it a a, you know listing it as a a mental disorder essentially drm1 yeah there's um really really bad theory on what causes it there's a lot of anyways we don't need to get into the whole thing but suffice it to say that yeah you know in the 1920s there had been a little bit of relaxation of cultural norms towards uh lgbtq folk that was completely gone by the end of the wars Mm -hmm. there were organizations that existed to champion gay rights yep generally known as uh homophile organizations which is kind of interesting it's like well yeah it's it's basically the same sort of structure as homosexual but yeah anyways it, it, it feels like this like alternate universe uh, term for it yeah, a little bit yeah but the way that these organizations tended to approach the issue was we're going to show everybody that homosexuals are just like them yeah by never in any way expressing our identity in any way shape or form that would deviate from the cultural norm we're not going make to it palatable yeah make it palatable that's a, exactly that's exactly it so you know we're never going to show any public displays of affection we're yep. not going to dress differently we're not yep. going to display any different taste in anything whatsoever you know gay people just like you because they don't do anything different than the norm it's 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 a very like uh repressed version of, of fitting into society yeah um you know this this whole the goal of all of this is well we're going to try and uh attain something resembling equal rights by not offending anyone and yeah. then maybe we can look at sort of expanding expanding from there visibility of of our culture and it's just not working it's no. not really doing anything but a lot of people are very committed to uh the strategy post war a lot of large cities had developed gay subcultures yep. um there's a lot of upheaval after the after the wars that basically allow you know some soldiers to just never return back to uh the small town where they couldn't be themselves and they managed yeah. to find a few like-minded people in in large urban centers mm-hmm. and you know that that nucleus tends to gather more and more people snowball yeah exactly but there's also a commensurate crackdown by police on these communities. Yeah. Well, and the government. There's there's a number of ways that they go go about this. One of the main ones is rampant entrapment campaigns. Yes, they would, that was a big one. Yeah, they they would basically. Um, well, I think the way I saw it put was uh, find their their youngest, best looking officers and uh, dress them in gay coded clothing. Yep. Send them out to public places and basically teach them how to cruise. Uh, yeah. using the uh, the language of the subculture of that yeah. time and that place. And the moment that anyone showed even the remotest interest in that person, they were arrested for public indecency or whatever, whatever other trumped-up charges were available to the police at that yeah. point in time. There were a lot of... Not, not that this is really the most important part, but there was also a lot of false arrests around this. Tons, that, yeah. Uh, the charges stuck because no lawyer worth their salt was willing to defend on these yeah. charges. Yeah, just kind of... Really stupid it's just stuff. slimy yeah it's just yeah you know? there's not really much else to say about it other than like come on guys like gross that's awful i hate this yeah gay culture as it were in the 1950s and 60s i've seen it in a lot of places and i mean i i don't i don't really have the the education or or, or tools to evaluate this but in a lot of places i sort of see it as, as being described as very lonely and yes. very um 
sad and mm-hmm. very um, constantly under threat, right? Like you can never feel safe in any in any capacity Absolutely. being yourself. Yeah. When we talk about anything resembling gay culture, like you're essentially talking about the really really old stereotype of like musicals basically like musical theater being yeah like a really common you know you've, you've heard the 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 chivalette of of uh, friend of dorothy referring yep. to yep. uh judy garland yep absolutely uh, who was a, a a well-known gay icon in the 1960s yeah you know that's sort of about it because there's absolutely no way to gather in public in a meaningful way to exchange culture and you can't have culture without interaction with other people. Yeah. And, and there, as far as I know, there were several bars, but they were, they were always raided quite frequently, right? Never long enough to, to really stand for very long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about those bars. Yeah, absolutely. They are one of the few places that gay men could go, uh, and, and meet other gay men. Yeah. Um, that that wasn't like literally out in public, you know, at, at yeah. gyms or in parks and things like that. You're like, mm-hmm. like very old cruising culture, right? But the thing is, most of those bars were actually run by the mob. Yes, and, yeah, they were. <laughs> uh, they were often unlicensed. Yeah, which would make them extremely vulnerable to police raids. Yeah, some of the kinder bars would kind of flicker the lights when they knew that the police were coming, so that any illicit activity could be seized yep. by the patrons. Uh, a lot of these men were forced to uh, bring women with them to kind of uphold the illusion that the this cover. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it was really. I want to be careful to not make it sound like the mob is doing anyone any favors here. No. This is a very like amoral exploitation by the yeah. mafia. It is a, well, we want their drink money. We'll, it was lucrative for them. They made a lot of money. We'll, we'll let them come and sit in our bars. There's no dancing allowed. There's no touching allowed. Yeah. Conversation. I believe it's limited to three people. Any oh. more than three people at a table or three men at a table, uh, is not allowed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not really, it's so bad. It's just better than anything else they really had for the most part. It it was just awful. These bars, because they're unlicensed to circle back around to the music, Mm -hmm. no reputable band would ever play at one. So they all have jukeboxes. Yeah. And so they're constantly playing music. And the thing to kind of keep in mind with, these gay bars is that there's a lot of very understandable shame associated with going to one of these bars, right? The louder the music, the better. (laughs) And when the music stops, it just gets super awkward. So you just want the music going constantly. Constantly. Yeah. So they were just feeding coins into these jukeboxes constantly. So they're just listening to whatever is in there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what's getting released in the late sixties on 45s, are Motown hits and funk hits. Yeah. Those are the things that you could dance to. Not that they're allowed to dance. No. But that's what they're listening to. They're not listening to live bands. Live no. live bands have no place in this, uh, this subculture. Yeah. In 1967 in New York, a new place opens. It's called the Stonewall Inn. Maybe mm-hmm. you've heard of it. Um, kind of a big deal. Here's the thing about Stonewall. We can talk about it as a nexus for the gay rights movement. Yeah. But the thing that you want to actually know about the Stonewall for our purposes is that it was the only bar in New York that would let men dance with other men. Okay. And that was because it was such 
a hole. <laughs> yeah. That it was like, there are so many other things going on wrong here, going wrong around here. We're just going to let whatever happens happen. Yeah. No license. No nope. place didn't have a sink. So they were just kind of nope. dunking glasses in tubs of water in between but, drinks. But the thing is, they were so oblivious to the types of people who could a- attend that yeah. Stonewall attracted the most marginalized of the LGBTQ community, which Absolutely. is saying a lot. A lot of these other bars that are like a little more upscale, quote, 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 um, that are, you know, attracting uh wealthier patrons yeah they could afford to pay the bribes to make sure that the cops didn't raid them on the wrong nights they could make yeah. sure to warn their their patrons things like that and in a lot of cases when there were raids the men who were there they kind of just put up with whatever the police put them through because the alternative was essentially much worse uh legal uh, ramifications and probably physical violence. Yeah. Not to mention the possibility of social ostracization. Yeah. The people attending the, 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 the Stonewall were people of color. Yep. There were a lot of drag queens, which were extremely marginalized. Absolutely. Even within gay culture at this point in time. Yeah. Um, some of those drag queens were trans, which was a thing that we didn't really even have language to express at this point, at that point in time, but, uh, have, have long since come out that way. These are people that even within the gay community are being marginalized. A lot of homeless youth, um, a lot of, uh, lesbians, which in a lot of other gay bars might be there as cover, but that's about it. Yeah. It was this place that, you know, it, it was kind of a last resort for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but they also let people dance. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to understate the place of dance within hookup culture or dating culture. Yeah. It is, it, it is a prelude to more. And the fact that it sounds like so footloose, but like they weren't letting any of these people dance <laughs> was a, a major hamper on interaction between yeah. these men it, it turned it into this like weird shameful thing there are stories of men going to stonewall for the first time and like knowing that they're gay but like also being like oh i don't dance with other men like yeah it, it gives this like gut reaction like this isn't right yeah but then realizing like well i'm not going to get any further if i don't dance and then dancing with people and realizing how much they loved it mm-hmm. stonewall is one bar in in, in new york right yeah. it's not the be all and end all but what happens is that the Stonewall did pay bribes to the cops. Yeah. As much about the liquor licenses as the raids. Yeah. But in June of 1969, June 28th of 1969, the police raid without any prior warning. Yeah. And there's a very small number of cops and there's a lot of LGBTQ folk inside and the cops get a little too rough about it. And the patrons decide they've had enough and they turn on the cops. Yep. We could spend, again, a long time on this, but essentially what happens is that they run the cops off. And that, yes, there are arrests. There's 13 arrests. Yep. Uh, the bar is completely destroyed. Uh, maybe by the it cops, maybe by the patrons. siege for oh, yeah. a few they, days, wasn't it? They barricaded the cops inside with yeah. the people they were trying to arrest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a... It's it was humiliating for the police involved. Yeah. There was this sense of like, they're not supposed to act this way when we come to arrest them. Yeah. Like this is a sentiment expressed by the arresting officers. And it's this interesting moment of, of a spark of courage within that community. That's really out of a place of desperation. These people went, yeah. I don't really care what happens to me at this point. Like I'm so down on my luck that it doesn't matter. They have no, they, there's nothing they can bribe them with mm-hmm. really. I mean, not no. nothing, but you know, it's, it's, it's much different than what they've seen at other bars. Yeah. And 
four cops are injured in this whole thing. Yep. Like it's 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 a whole it's a whole massive thing, and it's seen as a real sea change within uh, the gay community because you know when the raid goes down, there's like 250 people inside. Within a couple hours, there's more than 600 people outside protesting and barricading the place. Yeah. It's the spark that goes off, and I think sometimes Stonewall is seen as like. I think it's too centralized in certain ways. Like it's not as though it's the first protest that's taken place. It's not even the first time that there's a violent protest uh, that turns against cops. There was one in Compton's cafeteria in San Francisco in 1966, where some trans folk turned on police that were, were uh, being violent towards them. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing about, Stonewall that's a little bit different is that the protests continue for some time yeah. and there's organizations that come out of uh, these protests that yeah. start pushing for real political change the gay liberation front yep. or uh, the gay activist alliance and they start on very small kind of bylaw level changes that it's like you know what this is unconstitutional this is unfair we want this changed yeah and it starts with things like dancing yeah again very footloose huh. <laughs> But both of these organizations actually start hosting fundraising dances where they're not run by the mob. And like, yeah, there's no booze there, but like you can come and dance and no one's going to arrest you for it. And they become extremely popular. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Um, you know, the, the the GLF, the Gay Liberation Front, they tend to yep. be more like hippie psychedelic type dances. Mm-hmm. The Gay Activist Alliance, they try to replicate the gay bar experience as much as possible right down to the jukeboxes huh. full of Motown hits. They start DJing their parties, which is a really interesting change because these men don't really care about whether or not they have a live band. Yeah. They want the gay bar experience, but without the restrictions that they've been under yeah through the mob right they don't want to have to sit there and sit down every time the lights come on they want to dance yeah and that's kind of what they're there for and like these <laughs> these organizations also have like real political like they affect real political yeah, change yeah, yeah. they made massive strides in new york in the late 60s early 70s and and a lot of this will kind of ripple out to other major urban centers within the united states fairly quickly but for us talking about disco those mm-hmm. dances those dances are key. They're so popular that the first for-profit discos start opening in 1970. And this is the first time anyone has opened clubs in the United States with the express purpose of playing DJed music hmm. rather than hosting live bands. And the DJs at these places start getting really, really good. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to look at this, like the very early days of the the gay rights movement and consider dancing as being itself an act of resistance mm-hmm. it is civil disobedience yeah. uh, under the laws that they're fighting which is a really interesting thing and when people talk about disco as being like a ah, kind of vapid and apolitical and things like that it's kind of like no there's under there's undertones here that you don't quite catch if yeah. you don't understand the context of it right this ability for people to essentially court in public yeah is a major step towards expanding gay rights towards acceptance in wider culture and towards these people starting to accept themselves mm-hmm. which is I, I think a really interesting and, and and really touching thing yeah absolutely there's these parties in new york this is this is kind of tangentially related but in in, in 1970 valentine's day actually uh, this DJ, uh, David Mancuso hosts, hosts this loft party, his own loft. Okay. It's called the love saves the day party. Okay. Love saves the day. Yeah. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> um, uh-huh. yeah. 
noting what kind of uh, what kind of party it would be. All right. Um, and he starts hosting these like by invitation only, but very popular parties where he DJs the whole thing. Okay. And Mancuso happens to have like a very diverse friend group. Like it's not like anything like necessarily intentional, but like the people that are being invited to these parties uh, include LGBTQ folk. They mm-hmm. include trans folk. They include uh, various different ethnicities. Those are just the people that are there. But like mm-hmm. these parties become so popular, he starts putting them on every single week, and it's just like it's sold out every single time. There's a waiting list a mile long, and a lot of these very early discos, the for-profit discos that open, start replicating his playlists, his style, yeah, as like inspiration for how to set up their clubs, yeah, and. You know, this reputation for inclusiveness is part of that package, right? Yeah. And so these these discos are explicitly courting a very diverse attendance. Yeah. And they are, you know, playing the types of music that Mancuso is into and that would be found in some of these jukeboxes. They're playing a lot more funk, things like that. There's other, like, little innovations that start coming up, right? There's this DJ, uh, Francis Grasso, who starts using something called slip cueing to eliminate gaps in songs. Yeah. You know what slip cueing is? Uh, it's, it's a, it's a DJ technique. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where you, uh, you have two, two turntables. Two yeah. They're going through a, a DJ mixer in the middle yep. and the mixer allows you to play off of only one turntable at a time, but listen to both in your headphones. Mm-hmm. Slip cueing is where you put your thumb on the side of a turntable just to like slow it down a tiny bit. Yep. You've got a slip mat on the turntable yep. and you listen to it and you just kind of manipulate it just Nudge manually it. until the beat on lines each up. lines up. And what that allows you to do is as one song finishes, you slide the, the um, selector over to the other uh, turntable and it sounds as though the song never stops it just sort of changes yeah this eliminates those awkward gaps we were talking about it allows these people who are kind of dealing with this very very new type of socialization it, it takes away some of those awkward moments that they just that make it so much more painful yeah. and allows them to just keep on dancing. keep dancing yeah and th- the early accounts of disco is really interesting because it's they, they sound like a bunch of hippies. There's a lot of like talking about oneness and talking about connectedness mm-hmm. between everyone that's there. And, you know, a lot of drugs were happening and that yep. probably helped a lot. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw one one once somebody was talking about how dancing is fun, but it's only fun. And, you know, <laughs> disco is more than that. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of drug use. And the thing is, a lot of these discos aren't even bothering to get their alcohol licenses because their clientele aren't looking for alcohol. No, they're bringing their own fun with yeah. them. There are a lot of DJs who are setting their sets based on th- they'll have contacts who are drug dealers and they'll ask what's selling well this week <laughs> and tailor their sets to that. I um, see that, yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in 1976, a DJ uh, Tom Moulton invents the 12-inch 45 single. So ah. it's the size of an LP, yep. which usually runs at 33 and a third, 22 minutes. Yeah. But it's cut at 45 RPM, which allows you to set deeper grooves. It only runs for 15 minutes instead of 22, but it's better yeah. than a 7-inch, which runs maybe 5. Yeah. What DJs had to do up until then was mix in a new song every three minutes, which is really difficult. It can be tiring, yeah. So now you can make songs that are longer and longer so you can dance longer and it contributes to this 
infinite sort of feeling of the music and yeah. the, the, the incessant, you know, no breaks thing. The just continuation. Yeah. But it allows them to mix it, uh, you know, only a couple of times an hour versus every three minutes. Yeah. And it also gives much wider dynamic range on the recording, mm-hmm. which allows for much heavier bass. Yeah which is a big feature of these places because they keep getting stronger and stronger sound systems. So you can feel the bass thump in your chest. Yep. And you know, the stuff that they're playing is, you know, a lot of this like late funk stuff that we were talking about in the beginning, it's, it's really danceable, but with like a strong beat and yeah. and, and it, it just all contributes to this experience of, of just losing yourself in the music. Right. Mm-hmm. And by the time that, you know, 1973 rolls around and that Rolling Stone article comes out and it's like, hey, I, people love this for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, it was it was largely, you know, the emergence of gay culture. Yeah. And those 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 are the people who are dancing. And like there's a lot of people who are kind of going like, hey, this looks like fun. Let's let's check it out, too. But that's not their core clientele, at least not in 1973. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to 1974, when the Flamingo opens in in New York, which is an exclusively gay club, okay. only gay members are allowed. You yeah. had to sign up for a membership, pay for a yearly membership on top of cover. And it was sold out. Yeah. In five years, this is like completely transformed. Yeah. And disco as a, a uh, uh, as a piece of gay culture, as a component of it, is basically solidified it, it, it was it's it's you know you can't extract it from gay culture at this no. point it almost is gay culture on its own and so by the mid 70s when when disco has really arrived in the in the mainstream consciousness that's who has created mm-hmm. the disco experience in a lot of ways so i think here's a good place to take a break and when we come back let's talk about the industry's reaction to all of this and um how disco goes from this very underground thing to uh, a mainstream phenomenon sounds good Hey, I'll just wanted to let you know that I made a Spotify playlist based on all the songs that I used for this episode so you can hear the entire thing, plus a few extra songs, either disco or uh, pre-disco or even some things that came after disco that are very heavily disco inspired. That's the word I'm looking for. So if you want to check that out, the profile is just HI101, HI101, and the playlist is called Disco. Um, yeah, feel free to check it out. Back on HI101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hey! And we've been talking about the effect that sort of the the nascent gay rights movement had on the creation of disco. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say single-handedly because that's absolutely not true. Yeah. But it, it's certainly a big component in its popularity. You know, you have these, you know, massive amounts of, of people who are trying to develop a culture essentially from scratch yeah and doing so around disco and there's a lot of aspects like the more i read about it the more interesting some of this stuff was the ways that they start playing with things like you know gender expression and stuff like that in the very very early days was like really really interesting to me oh okay there's this fad in in the very early days of of disco called clone okay and clone was this fashion trend among gay men you know, when, when you're talking about gay fashion in the 60s, like the the thing that they would dress those those uh, entrapment cops up in was essentially like chinos and a white T-shirt and yeah. like penny loafers. Yeah. And that was like considered like 
gay fashion. Yeah. By the time you get to like the early 1970s, it was all about clone. Okay. Clone was masculine drag. Okay. Gay men would grow mustaches and they would wear the tightest Levi's 501s they could find. Okay. And work boots and yep. very tight t-shirts. Okay. And flannel shirts. I know what you're talking about now. I, yeah. But like very tight. Yeah. It was this really interesting play on, on masculinity because for some of them it was, fi- it was kind of like, well, finally, like I can, I can feel masculine, but also still be a gay man. And that's mm-hmm. fine. For some of them, it was basically a pastiche of the, the whole idea of yeah. masculine expression. And all of them are kind of participating in this in their own way, but it's all sort of trying to distance themselves from this sort of, you know, the 1940s Hollywood type stereotype of a gay man, you know, the, the very like trying to think how to how to best describe it but also you know very very feminine and yeah uh, you know i think the the limp wristed is usually how it's described ah uh, yeah yeah it's this attempt to move away from that okay but also to signal to other gay men that they're gay yeah but doing so while wearing this very like straight uniform and so there's this whole thing where people are finding these clubs where it's like well look at all these very masculine men who are dancing here (laughs) this looks like a great time but i don't understand why there's no women because it turns out as expression of their culture develops in the early 70s a lot of gay men specifically start pushing women out of those spaces yes yeah yeah um which is difficult for them they enjoyed Mm -hmm. dancing they enjoyed the companionship of these men yeah and all of a sudden it's kind of like well we're not welcome in this space now that's kind of you know what's going on here yeah you also start seeing exclusivity in these spaces in terms of socioeconomic status in a lot of cases okay you had to be wearing the right cloning uh Uh, uh, clothing so all of a sudden that's hard to say um (laughs) sorry go ahead so all of a sudden the uh, they're skyrocketing in socioeconomic status right exactly some of these clubs are also segregated by uh, ethnicity oh there's a lot of like really difficult stuff that comes up as this this group realizes that they have collective power economically yeah and it does end up striding in terms of a lot of the same dynamics that the rest of american uh uh, culture would stride along yeah but what happens in terms of the uh the industry and Mm -hmm. and their examination of this whole thing is oh look at all these people with lots of money that they want to spend yeah and they want to spend to express themselves which is a way that people really like spending money and tend to Mm -hmm. spend a lot of money on (laughs) we should cater to this yeah you know it's a it's a kind of a cutthroat way of looking at it but this is how business works yeah it's like there's this whole new category of consumer and what they want to buy is exactly what those music labels want to sell remember we talked before about producer driven music and uh getting rid of these like touring bands and things like that touring a band is expensive it really is you know what's not expensive is shipping shipping records exactly exactly (laughs) and you know, when you tour, it's kind of like, well, how many cities can you hit on a tour? It taps out. How many clubs simultaneously can you have the latest hit bumping in? All of them. All of them. Literally every single one. Yeah. Ethan just made the cash and money (laughs) movements with his fingers (laughs) and it's absolutely correct. Yeah. No, there's this, this, kind of thing where they're like well we get producer control we get yep. this new sound that people can get really into like it's clearly very popular with this segment of 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 the populace uh it sells singles which 
excuse me, yes, please. Yep. They're, they're absolutely loving this. And so they pivot to disco sensibilities as much as possible. This is where I kind of want to come back to Celine Dion. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is that I, here, here's the question that kind of interests me about all of this which is that like now when you look at sort of the association between uh dance music and gay culture it's kind of like okay well that makes sense historically Mm -hmm. but at that moment in the in the early 1970s what makes disco the music of that movement in other words what is there that says it couldn't have been any other danceable music because Hmm. it's about the dance right and it's about the identity yeah but there is this like aspect of it where it's kind of like well this is a cultural signifier Mm -hmm. this type of dance this 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 funk turned dance music yeah what is it about it that connects it to this movement so strongly other than kind of a a number of coincidences in a certain way yeah and i find that really interesting because you know to be uh gay man in new york in the early 1970s yes this is the music you are probably listening to mm-hmm. but it's all sort of just the stuff kind of lining up in a certain way I, I i don't know i find that really interesting but once that happens it's locked in yeah it's written in stone like there's no there's no turning this around <laughs> we're not making you know polka the new uh music of <laughs> the gay liberation movement right <laughs> but like but you know what i mean though right yeah, like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's this really interesting moment where it's like okay this music is cool and it's been associated with the subculture they get to claim it as theirs and for a while there that exclusivity is a signifier to other people being part of that movement right like yeah. it's 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 this really interesting like flashpoint in music history for me um and and i think that only comes up as a result. I, I think you only have that opportunity as a result of the complete void of uh, LGBTQ culture before that moment mm-hmm. in American life. Yeah, everything else comes with so much baggage, but there is that like one moment where that's theirs now. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. A lot of recording artists are kind of left behind by disco a little bit. Okay, you know when you get a a label like Motown for example, mm-hmm. which made so much money in the 1960s yeah. off of a very specific type of soul and you get this pivot to disco, well I mean they don't really necessarily care about specifically that Motown music. Yeah. But it's kind of like, well can we pivot to this, right? Yeah. It's close enough, right, isn't it? And not really. Not quite. No. I mean, some artists manage to pull it off. Oh, but yeah. Other ones have a lot more trouble. We talked about Isaac Hayes earlier. Yeah. It just doesn't really do disco. Yeah. Uh, same with James Brown. Like, doesn't really quite no. get it. Yeah. You know, makes some sort of responses to disco. Yeah. You know, Get Up is basically a response to disco. Yeah. But it's not disco. And he's basically saying, like, you guys are dancing to disco, but it's got no heart. Mm-hmm. Here's something you can really dance to. And everyone goes, who are you? Go away. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm busy dancing to this good music. <laughs> and not to say that Get Up wasn't a good song. It's a great song. It's a fantastic song. But it's not disco, and it wasn't the song for that moment. Mm-hmm. You do get formerly soul or funk artists that do manage to make the uh, the transition, though. Yeah. For example, Diana Ross from The Supremes, yes. right? You want to listen to some Diana, Diana yes, Ross? Yes, I do. Okay, let's do it.
that's Love Hangover from 1976 and is like unambiguously disco. Fantastic. It is so disco, right? Yeah. Like it's no, there's no, you know, there was some of that funk stuff where it was kind of like, oh yeah, I sort of hear a little bit what's going on. Yeah, here, yeah, right? yeah. This is like that's disco. square in the, in the middle of it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's quintessential. And you start hearing like the difference between the beats we listened to before and the beat in this, right? Yeah. It's much more danceable. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to say why specifically, because like the bass is still pretty funk. Yeah. But that beat. Mm-hmm. Choice. <laughs> The other thing you'll notice about that song is that for a Supreme, Diana Ross isn't really singing that much. Not, not, not a lot. No, no. She, she wasn't terribly happy with that development of the style. (laughs) Uh, She commented at one point that uh, a new disco song wasn't really much of a song because she wasn't really singing anything. Yeah. But that's the thing. Disco wasn't about necessarily the song, right? Yeah. There's a lot of DJs who are mixing for things like, well, they're, they're mixing for the dance experience yeah. and like complex lyrics aren't really conducive to dance. Like you don't no. want to like stop and be like, wait, what did they just say? <laughs> you want like Whoa, very like, res- like repetitive, lots of instrumental breaks. A lot of DJs were remixing songs yep. for inter- instrumental breaks. Yeah. Some of like a lot of them were doing it on like, like real to real tape and it sounded garbage. Yeah. But it also goes back to what we were talking about before with uh, singles being so short. Mm-hmm. Well, they could pre remix a uh, a reel-to-reel tape and just let it play for 20 minutes yeah give themselves a break yeah other djs were doing stuff like uh there, there was a dj at the gallery uh nikki Sayano, who uh would manipulate which speakers were playing at any given time using an eq oh. to create what is essentially a drop because he would yeah. cut out everything but the drums and bass a little bit of bass but mostly drums and then he would he would switch it to all the treble stuff. So it's like really high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he would cut in the mids and the basses for this like release of like the whole track is back. Oh, And yeah. it would be like extremely good, but also you'd be high out of your mind. And so it'd be that much better. <laughs> and you've been dancing of... for three hours. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Dehydrated. Dehydrated and hallucinating a little bit. You're... Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> no, there's, uh, I mean, yeah, the party drugs too. Like that's the thing about disco. Yeah. I, I think... <sighs> I think when people talk about disco, there's like two versions of it that they talk about, which is this very like shiny, synthetic, like fake version. And then there's Saturday Night Fever version. And then there's this like very like sleazy, like grungy, kind of gross version. Yeah. And here's the thing. It was both. Yeah. At the same time, those aren't exclusive things. Both of those things were happening. And it's like, yeah, the, the types of drugs that people are doing are like... They're, they're adding so much to the mix mm-hmm. and it's all just so you can keep dancing longer and feel closer to everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's all anybody's going for. Um, well, and making the sex better. That's the other thing. Like the amount of casual sex that's happening in these clubs is just like, it's, it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. <laughs> Wild question. Mm. Uh, just out of curiosity. Cause I don't know. Mm. Was ecstasy around at that point? I think it was just starting to, I would have to double check. I don't remember. I had a, I, I usually like list this stuff out in my notes. I, yeah. I had a list of drugs at one point and I cut it. Cause I was like, I oh, do we really need to get into this. The stuff I can tell you is big is, um, cocaine, cocaine, huge poppers, poppers, uh, speed. Yeah. LSD at the beginning, but like not as much. It's not a good dance drug. It's not a dance drug. Um, uh, quaaludes. Yes. Quaaludes. Yeah. Absolutely. Quaaludes was huge. In fact, they were, 
Quaaludes were so big in discos that they were nicknamed Disco Biscuits in the 70s. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that until now. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, it's it's all about energy. Yep. And d- dancing longer and feeling closer to people. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it, it is this like very hedonistic setting, right? We were talking about the music. We got yeah. sidetracked by the club culture, which again is is an important part yeah, of it. A huge part like, of it. Yeah. You know, let's get back to the music. I, okay. I wasn't finished there. Like you get a lot of the a lot of the labels are signing on really recognizable uh female artists. Yeah. Which is this again really interesting kind of tricky thing to navigate mm-hmm. in American society at this point because disco records, going back to what we were saying with the with the club uh, atmosphere, disco records become like more and more sexually explicit as you go on. And the music is written to facilitate that. Yeah. Um, the, the vocals are sparse. They're often very breathy and they're often extremely su- suggestive. Yeah. And, and that's not something that the record labels want their female singers to be doing too much kind of the opposite of... actually in the oh. 70s they're going like hey aretha franklin can you re- record this like very grungy disco record and she's going no <laughs> because she's aretha franklin and she remembers the 60s where black women's sexuality is something that's wielded against them yeah right and all of a sudden they're they're asking her to put herself out there in, mm-hmm. in ways that she's extremely uncomfortable with which is yeah. extremely understandable given the context but there are other uh, artists that take the record labels up on that because it is as lucrative as it is right yeah some of whom end up you know kind of regretting it further on you know chaka khan is like on the record is saying like man i wish i hadn't sung some of those songs i kind of feel bad about them now mm-hmm. you know um donna summer is huge grace yep. jones is huge yep. and it's this interesting thing where it's like reinforcing this this certain aspect of of gay culture which is like this you know the idea of the diva right like they're they're like hmm. kind yep. of putting putting these women on a pedestal in a certain way a lot of female artists are recording but like for as many as we kind of know like who they are yeah there's so many there's hundreds there's thousands even that are completely nameless you would never know who they were it's not as though these djs are crediting anyone yeah when they're playing these tracks you know even the record or even the the radio stations later on in the 70s it's kind of like yeah okay it's on the it's on the record but a lot of times the producers are the ones getting credited not necessarily the uh the singers and it's this kind of strangely exploitative system where it's like on one hand it's encouraging these women to embrace their sexuality in a way that you know second wave feminism is like really encouraging through the 60s and 70s and -hmm. you know the civil rights movement is trying to open those doors for uh black women but is still really uncomfortable for a lot of people based on prior experience, very yeah. understandably so. So it's it's this very, very strange dynamic to navigate. And it's specifically for money. Yes. Which is big and it's important. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The discos themselves start getting more and more lavish and lucrative. You have club owners putting in these massive sound systems, like ridiculous yeah. sound systems completely unnecessary sound systems if you oh yeah if you really get down to it but the sound system how ridiculous it is is a selling point yeah and they're making back so much money like it's paying off in space light systems huge 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 absolutely massive you want it to look not glamorous glamorous isn't the right word 
there's, flashy. <laughs> flashy's good. There, there's this thing in in kind of low culture where it's like there's this base uh, appeal to like flashiness, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, it's it's that it's that whole put rhinestones on everything yeah, kind yeah, yeah, of yeah. kind of instinct where it's kind of like I feel like someone with like a lot of money and really good taste would never do this, but also is really shiny and I kind of <laughs> love it, right? And yeah, and, and that's that's a big part of disco it's it's people learning to express themselves in these ways that it's like giving themselves permission to express their own version of fancy Mm -hmm. even though everyone understands that this is an actual fanciness yeah no one's showing up in a top hat they're showing up in full body polyester you know bodysuits right like which is clearly tacky but everyone loves it and it makes you look real good while you're dancing (laughs) so hey why not right Mm -hmm. as these clubs become more popular they stop being like the exclusive domain of gay men which mm-hmm. um makes a lot of sense especially because there are a lot of places where discos are opening where there isn't necessarily a large uh lgbtq community yeah right there are a lot of discos like the, we talk about all the, like the big clubs in new york and stuff where all the celebrities go there's just as many if not more discos that are basically opening up in the basement of or in, in the lobby of a hotel yeah in like small town america yeah this is like the most it's got a, such huge widespread appeal there was there's this quote i saw somewhere that like, it, it was something along the lines of like the most authentic disco experience was hearing ymca for the third time in a night uh in a in a, in a hotel lobby while dancing along with like uh traveling businessmen and it was like <laughs> ugh, yeah huh. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but like, that's the thing. These places were making money and, yeah. and there isn't necessarily, um, for everyone participating, this same connotation of gay culture. No, uh, a lot of places probably wouldn't have even had that association to it at all. They yeah. just would have heard the music on the radio mm-hmm. and found these places opening up, mm-hmm. seen the Rolling Stone record or uh, article, which yeah. probably didn't mention much about the no it didn't seem to really understand what's happening (laughs) no but uh but but caught on to the the zeitgeist of it right yeah absolutely it that's that's exactly what it is it became so popular so fast that it kind of grew beyond that community it became like Mm -hmm. out of their control a little bit and the thing is there were people who were at the beginning of disco that got cut out right all those women that we were talking about both lesbian women or lgbtq women and straight women that went along with their gay friends yeah uh as some meager protection against police brutality basically yeah they kind of went well we liked dancing too and now we're not allowed to come yeah they found discos that were open to them as well yeah there is a significant category of american culture that needs to be addressed here which is straight white guys who couldn't dance and Hmm. they had a lot of issues with disco because they couldn't dance and yep you know it kind of evokes that middle school feeling a little bit being dragged along to a disco and seeing a lot of very good looking people yeah who are very good dancers and not really understanding necessarily why they're such good dancers, which is that they've put in the practice. Yeah. They've been doing this for years. Yeah. All you're seeing is a lot of people who are really good at this thing and you're not good at this thing and you're probably not drunk enough to try. Yep. And it's an uncomfortable experience, right? Yeah. But it's also a place where, because it's a, it's such a component of culture, um, gay men are really shining and mm-hmm. non-white men are really shining because dance is a little bit more part of their culture yep. for a very long time that, you know rock has sort of 
neglected in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, You don't dance when you go to a rock show in the sixties, you, you know, pump your fist in the air and maybe wave your lighter. And that's about the closest (laughs) to dancing that you really get. And it's kind of like a bit of an atrophied muscle for a lot of these guys. And it's, 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 it's it's an uncomfortable experience for them. And they kind of find themselves like left behind by their girlfriends who want to go dancing. Mm -hmm. And it creates a little bit of animosity, but in the mid seventies, if anything, these guys, these guys are going like, man, I got to learn to dance. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. uh, At least at this point in time, there are older songs that are still being like brought into disco, but the ones that get brought into disco are, more things that have like really simple lyrics that are like yeah. really easily remixed into disco. Yeah. Um, Sly and the Family Stone dance to the music. Yeah. 1967. Way too Perf- early for disco. Yeah. But has a really strong beat. Yeah. And the chorus really like literally just says dance to the music over and over and over. Which everybody can get behind that. Everybody can get behind that, man. It's it's perfect. <laughs> um, but most of what's happening is like new music that's focused specifically on this environment. Yeah. The production starts playing with things like synth because they're trying yep. to cut down on production costs. <laughs> it, string orchestras are expensive, right? Lots of musicians to pay. Yeah. And you get stuff. That's where you get Donna Summer's I Feel Love, right? Yeah. You know, uh, let's kick a little bit of that on for a second. Cool. It's a little weird. Early sun, early synth always gets, I don't know, it's in my teeth a little bit. I, I, I like it. I like it. Yeah. But it's like, you can tell how early it is that they're messing with this. Stuff, yeah. Right? I can, I can almost see the, the waves on the oscillator. You right. Know? Um, but it's still like, again, unambiguously like disco, like this yeah. is too dance too. Yeah. And I'm sure it's, it's, it's new. It's very interesting sound. So mm-hmm. it's like. your attention is there right? yeah absolutely and that's kind of what you're going for at this point is like a hit that stands out but not enough to like take you out of the flow yeah and the synths aren't quite as lush Mm -hmm. at this point at least Mm -hmm. like they they definitely can get lusher yeah and they will yeah but um it does feel less lush yeah you also get a little bit more of the singers starting to like assert themselves as like stars yeah I, I think the big one uh that comes out in like this middle era of disco uh would be lady marmalade by labelle oh you didn't know this was a disco song first let's listen to the original okay that song's disco definitely yeah we should have known we should have known all all along the other thing that you start getting in the 70s and this is maybe the part for me is like not i was gonna say not a disco fan and i don't i don't want to sound like i don't like disco it's not Mm -hmm. that but like i i would never have associated like uh identified myself necessarily that way yeah um i never had the disco sucks type like vitriol but like 
the number of like mainstream or like uh, non-disco acts that start like incorporating disco elements yeah is massive the number of stuff uh, the number of songs i saw listed as disco it was just kind of like wait what do you mean that that's disco yeah but like it is let's listen to a couple of things that i pulled together okay Like, it's slow for disco. Yeah. And I'm not saying it is necessarily disco, but, like, David Bowie was so interested in it. He was hanging out at discos. Oh, I'm sure. You can totally picture him there. The, the thing that I found really interesting about this song in particular was that a lot of David Bowie fans were like, ah, like, this is a little too... <laughs> well, I, I mean, honestly, they, they, they went, ah, this song's a little too gay for me. But... Yeah. Here's the thing about David Bowie. Like... He had already, like, identified himself as a bisexual man at this point, but yeah. that wasn't the issue. The issue was the falsetto in this song and the disco undertones, huh. which is just kind of like... <sighs> really? <weird. laughs> but it's not It's not about who he is. It's about the kind of music he's making. Yeah. Let's put on a uh, another favorite of mine. Okay. the keith richards biography no it's a good read i enjoyed it a lot yeah i would recommend it okay uh i remember him talking about this song writing this song um and how he was like kind of annoyed with mick for spending a lot of time hanging out at studio 54 which didn't open until after the song was released but anyway um (laughs) there's there's a couple things that are a little (laughs) incongruous Ah, or i may be remembering wrong i don't know keith (laughs) doesn't matter but one of his main complaints was like uh he wanted like mick wanted to do disco yeah but like he was chasing the popular thing and keith was like i felt like the stones were always at their best when they were like doing their own thing and like forging their own path and i'm thinking like that's really rich for the rolling stones actually they stole yeah. a lot of stuff yeah. <laughs> like, they were never really doing their own thing but no. all right okay keith you just didn't <laughs> like disco i get it it's still a very good song it's a fantastic song definitely disco <laughs> One more that I want to play in this block. Oh, okay. And this one I want to play only because I don't know why I never thought of this song as disco. I'm so confused why I never thought of this song and this artist as disco. I distinctly remember having this thought at one point, which was basically, what did Michael Jackson do between, like, Jackson 5 and Thriller? And, like, of course the answer is disco. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's disco. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was the king of pop, and it was pop at that point. Oh, exactly, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And, like, you have all these acts that are, like, so tinted by the disco sound where it's yeah. kind of like, well, 
I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Even if that wasn't their main target, they could still sell the single and get it played in those clubs. Mm -hmm. And even if it was remixed against something else, you're still selling the 45, right? Well, exactly. That's, that's exactly it. You know, all these artists are, you know, going for this like authentic disco sound. Oh, we were talking about Bowie before. Yeah. You know, he was, he was so proud of himself for like hiring a couple of black musicians in his band to like try and get as authentic sound as he could. And like yeah. all this kind of like, like you read the, you read the uh, interviews now and it's kind of like, Oh uh, guys. Uh. Mm. <laughs> but I think the worst offender in terms of going for authenticity, but thinking that they could like do it better than anybody else has to have been the Bee Gees. Are you aware that the Bee Gees made music before disco? I am. Are you aware of how bad the Bee Gees were before? I am. The Bee Gees essentially wanted to be the Beatles. Yeah. And the thing is, most bands, when they say stuff like that, they're kind of like, we're looking to be the next big thing. The Bee Gees literally just wanted to play Beatles songs. Yeah, pretty much. Didn't do a great job of it. <laughs> they were like loathed by the music community. They had this uh, manager, uh, Robert Stigwood. And Stigwood's an interesting guy because he had a real like eye for commercial uh, hmm. potential for bands. Okay. Yep. He was also Brian Epstein's uh, business partner for a while in the 60s, the manager of the Beatles. Yeah. And when he became partners with Epstein, then the two of them, their management company was managing both the Beatles and the Bee Gees. Yeah. You know, a couple other bands too. He had Cream under his umbrella, which is kind of yeah. cool. But the Beatles hated uh, Stigwood so much and the Bee Gees <laughs> so much that they paid uh, 25,000 uh, 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 pounds to release uh, Stigwood from his contract after Brian Epstein died in 1967. They're like, wow. nope, we're not sticking with this company. <laughs> you guys suck. We're out of here. Yeah. But Stigwood wasn't really faced by that. He thought the Bee Gees had a lot of potential. A lot of radio stations thought so as well. There was mm -hmm. a lot of radio play of Bee Gees songs. But they weren't really like a musician's band. No. But then disco comes along and the Bee Gees went, well, everybody loves disco. We want to play disco now. <laughs> there was a lot of like interviews about how they like wanted to do disco, but better. Yeah. The thing is, they never really stopped ripping off other artists. No. Like at all. <laughs> we can't have this conversation without talking a little bit about Saturday Night Fever. And, yeah. And by extension, staying alive. Yeah. I found out, I don't know five days ago that staying alive just ripped off the baseline like 100 from stevie wonder yeah were you aware of this i was yeah i had never made that connection before and i'm a little yeah. mad at myself for it but it's like it's so blatant it's very blatant i i just mm. anyways yeah i i could uh yeah oh you know what i'll play i'll play like five seconds of each one right here okay So there's that. Um, boys, this is not original music. I'm sorry. No, they've, they've just never really done original stuff. It's, no. it's not their MO. They're not capable of it. In 1976, a writer for The New Yorker, uh, Nick Cohn, wrote this article called The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night about disco culture. That's a great title. It's a great title. <laughs> this whole article is about this guy who 
prowls around with this like pack of other guys, you know, asking girls to dance. And, mm. you know, he's, he's kind of crude one moment and sensitive the next. And it's like really compelling stuff. And it turns out that he makes the entire thing up because he was very young and had no idea about, you know, journalistic integrity or <laughs> any of that stuff was really confused by disco and didn't really care to learn much more. Just yeah. made the entire thing up. Yeah. Robert Stigwood read this article and went, this needs to be a movie. Oh. This completely fabricated story. And this is what they end up turning into Saturday Night Fever. It's not yeah. Stigwood's first movie based on music. He actually uh, produced Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Tommy, like the who. Yeah. Tommy. And he went, this is going to be my next big thing. This could make $100 million. No problem. Yeah. And got the rights to this article and started making this movie. He got the Bee Gees, who's in his stable, to write the, the, the soundtrack, the soundtrack yeah. for it. When they first started sending out the very first Bee Gees single, yeah. disco single, Jive Talking, they sent it out in a white package like no like no uh didn't say who it was didn't have any photos okay they found that only 20 percent of radio djs could correctly identify it as the bgs they had changed so much about their huh. musical yeah i want to say look but that's not the right word aesthetic i suppose yeah you know they had switched to the whole like falsetto thing yeah it's it's very different music than their early stuff. Jive talking still completely ripped off changes by Dave Bowie, but yeah, um, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> you know, they got they got a bunch of different songs, including "Staying Alive" on the soundtrack to uh, Saturday Saturday Night Fever, and that album was such a hit that until Thriller, the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever was the best selling album of all time. Huh. Yeah, don't hear that stat as often as the Thriller one, huh? No. Huh, weird. The movie introduces Disco to a much larger audience than had previously been acquainted with it, right? Yeah. It's got it's got John Travolta, the big star. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious now to actually watch the movie. I'm not sure how bad it is. But it sounds like a remarkably nuanced look at the place of Disco in American culture. It addresses themes of you know the new masculinity of the idea yeah. of uh you know the importance of appearance without you know necessarily making that effeminizing yeah it addresses uh you know the decline in blue collared jobs in middle america it you know like it's oh, it's this very okay. like broad reaching <laughs> you know and 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 some of that is you know implicit right yeah it, it even manages to at least sidelong sort of address the emergence of uh, LGBTQ folk in American culture, hmm. as well as like the anxieties that are put on like the white working class in America of, you know, having to deal with the loss of like monopoly on culture in the United States. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, and does so in, you know, again, I've, I've not seen the movie, but the writing I've seen on it has all been like surprisingly positive and nuanced, which I was not expecting from all right anything I've seen about it. <laughs> so I really need to sit down and watch it. Yeah. I, I just ran out of time preparing for this one, unfortunately. Should Once again, most, one time. Of, most of what I know about it is it comes from things that have satirized it. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so Disco I'm ends sure. up being 
ripe for parody, right? Like, Ah. you know, once it collapses, but you know, there's a few things that disco enthusiasts really hate about the movie. You know, the, the floor clearing solo dances. Oh yeah. That's not the point of disco at all. No. Uh, you know, nobody has fog machines, you know, stuff like that. The, the, the dance moves are just like, nobody's doing those dances. Everybody's doing the hustle. (laughs) This is not, this is not the dance that anyone's doing. Yeah. Um, hustle's a great song, by the way, man, I love the hustle, but it does get a lot more people out to dance yeah. in discos um the number of discos explodes afterwards and it becomes much bigger globally it's not as though there were no discos anywhere but after the movie comes out it becomes much bigger yeah in europe in japan in the uk like uh, all of these places that were kind of lukewarm on it beforehand mm-hmm. uh, brazil is big um oh, i can only imagine a brazilian disco that'd right? be amazing but like no clubs looked that good no clubs were that yeah, clean no. you know it, it was a very like sanitized version of it and it's not that sanitized but it's still a sanitized version of it yeah it really it really broadens the appeal of of disco to everyone mm-hmm. everyone you know it, it kind of uh, chronicles the transformation of the disco aesthetic to like the polyester it's it's a movie that actually gets people out to these clubs which is really interesting and really lucrative for club owners there were actually a couple of uh attempts to like franchise discos almost it was kind of like oh a, here's your you know start your own disco kit you know <laughs> here, here's the macrame to hang on the walls um you know uh, here's the sound system you need stuff yeah. like that you get to you know studio 54 finally opening in 1977 yeah you also get like this over commercialization of disco from like not just the club owners but also like the record labels like this is where like the village people starts in 1977 right yeah. a band that perplexingly was not uh, recognized as gay coded to a lot of america for a very long time <laughs> <laughs> did you know that did you know that the navy wanted to use the, the music uh, video to in the navy as a promotional video i did ironically for a very long time i did know that i love that fact it makes, it makes me so happy it makes me so happy YMCA where it's kind of like hey here's an environment where we feel like we can be ourselves and not put up walls to the world around us and it's like look at these friends having a great time (laughs) let's do a dance that spells out the letters I love that that one was supposed to be commercialized and accidentally wasn't I know I know it's really interesting it's it's, yeah it was never picked up by the Y as a yeah yeah yeah. well I mean I think much later but not at the time yeah um yeah you also get uh the sort of global attempts to uh record disco and things like abba right you know Mm -hmm. that's that's euro disco at its finest right but again you're centralizing these artists in a way that is meant for marketing rather than for playing in the clubs yeah it isn't always like the best club music necessarily no dancing queen gets everyone up to dance every single time yeah but like it's not in that same vein of like 15 minute long song with like 45 seconds of vocals and the rest is just grinding yeah um it's not the same kind of song it's very pop oriented right it's a it's a radio play single in 1980 the grammys finally start the best disco recording category because disco is dominating the rest of the category so badly that they (laughs) want to ghettoize it yeah and 1980 is the only year that this category exists before disco dies i was gonna say that that seems late for disco (laughs) the award is won by gloria Gaynor for i will survive which if one disco song is gonna win hey it's not a bad choice man did it (laughs) it's not a bad it's not a bad choice let's talk about killing disco okay disco sucks campaigns are led largely by djs of classic rock radio stations Hmm. and that is the truth of the matter 
Okay. This is a coordinated assassination. Yeah. By the classic rock radio cabal. <laughs> and I'm only half kidding here because there are radio station consultants in this era that will help you figure out how to be more successful as a radio station. Yeah. And a lot of radio stations have converted to disco by this point in time, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to play radio disco. Yeah. It's designed for DJing. Yeah. It's explicitly designed for DJing. To DJ disco records, it's like it's like easy mode, man. And mm. they make a lot of money doing it because it's so popular. The trouble with disco, especially after the invention of the 12-inch single, mm-hmm. is it's not making as much on record sales as it, as it used to. Yeah. Because a 12-inch single t- uh, costs basically as much to produce as an LP, but it sells for the same amount as a single. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Couple that with the fact that the radio or the the recording industry is seeing its biggest slump in decades. Yep. Uh, at the end of the 1970s, and disco seems like a really easy target to blame for bad sales. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, how do we get sales back up? People like rock records. Yep. People buy rock records. Rock's going through this weird crisis right now, where everyone has to make a 45 minute long song, call it a concept album, <laughs> <laughs> and that's great for us. Yeah. Um, thank you, Pink Floyd, <laughs> which I mean, even Pink Floyd's The Wall, like another brick in the wall part two has yeah. like some pretty disco stuff going on. And if yeah. you really listen to it, it's kind of disco. Sorry. Yeah, I, I <laughs> can totally see it. Your, your face doesn't believe me right now. <laughs> I can see that on it. But, um, you know, it, it's it's this it's this thing where it's like, well, if we start pivoting back to rock. Yeah, maybe we can kickstart album sales Mm -hmm. and so you get a couple of classic rock djs who kind of start this off grassroots and then analysts see what's happening and go like oh this could work there's one in san jose uh goes by dennis erectus at kome uh yeah which kind of lets you know what sort of disco dj or what kind of dj he is yeah you know his whole shtick is uh putting on disco records and then switching the the turntable to 78 rpm and then it sounds funny and then he plays sound effects over it and that's how he mocks disco <laughs> that's so childish i want to listen to it <laughs> it's so dumb but like the real the real the one that has the biggest effect if we're looking on like an individual level is steve Dahl, uh dj out of chicago okay it's 24 years old yeah He's just been fired by his radio station, who just converted to disco. Okay. He is a classic rock dis- uh, DJ. Yeah. He gets a new job at WLUP and spends basically all his time on air railing against disco. He lisps the word disco every time he says it, just to make sure you know who's behind disco. Oh. Uh, you know, he talks about how it's a cultural void, how it's about excess and hedonism and mm. uh, polyester falseness, whereas rock is real and... You know, all of that stuff. Yeah. And as somebody who really likes classic rock, it's kind of like, I understand where, like, the attraction to, like, real instruments comes from. I do get that. Yeah. But, like, also the misunderstanding of what's happening in disco is so frustrating now that I know it, where it's kind of like, yeah, it's hedonistic, but, like, you have to understand the people who are, like, going through something through this movement, right? You know, the 70s are, like, this very, like, cynical time in American culture, right? Like, you start Mm. off the decade with Watergate, you end, you know, the middle is the OPEC crisis, and you end it with the Iran hostage uh, Uh, crisis, right? Like, there's a lot going on. Yeah. You know, songs are about, you know, all I want to do is dance, or, like, 
you know, um, escapism. It's it's escapism, but like a lot of them are also subversively political when you're looking at it through the lens of the development of LGBTQ culture. Yeah, and it's hard to look at something like uh, Sylvester's "You Make Me Feel Mighty Real" and say like, "Oh, this means something." But like when you you know analyze it through the lens of Sylvester being a gay man mm-hmm. talking about feeling valid for the first time in his life that is an intensely political thing no it's not blowing in the wind but it's got a better beat yeah you can dance to it and it still means a lot yeah do you know this song by the way let's put on a couple of bars yeah let's put it on I mean, like, what's more disco than that song, right? Oh. Like, it's 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 perfect. It's perfect in a certain way. Yeah. When you look at something like a fifth of Beethoven, I get where you're seeing this as like this crass like commercialism. You yep. know, a fifth of Beethoven, right? It's the remix of Beethoven yep. Fifth as yeah. a disco I, song. Yep. They were remixing everything as disco by the end oh, of the seventies. Yeah. And like looking at that stuff, I get it. Where you're like, there's no there's no heart in this. This is a weird cash grab. I hate this. Yeah. But. Later, Dahl would say that it wasn't about homophobia. It wasn't about, you know, class issues. It wasn't about, yeah. you know, race issues. And I'm not saying that everyone who didn't like disco in the 70s was automatically, like, an activist about it. Yeah. But it's also not not about that. Nope. It, in a very there. broad uh, cultural sense. And that's where we come back to the, like, why do you like what you like thing from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. There is a certain aspect of, like... Yeah, I mean, disco was in a lot of ways the music of everybody except specifically middle class white straight guys. <laughs> yeah. And yep. even, even then, a lot of them listen to disco. Yeah. But there is this like very strong, like, music isn't for me feeling happening in the 1970s, which is a real thing. And interestingly enough, has been kind of retconned into the music of the 70s. Because when you think of 70s music what do you think of right like you know led zeppelin or pink floyd or like these like these classic rock bands which really weren't doing terribly well no from a commercial standpoint in the 1970s filling arenas absolutely good music yes still ripping off black artists 100 (laughs) percent but you know they felt like they belonged to this this fairly large segment of society yeah and so what you end up getting here is, is you know, a guy like Steve Dahl who's getting fired up about it, who feels personally wronged by disco, mm-hmm. who's getting a lot of support called in by people listening. Yeah. Um, you know, he he starts getting carried away with stuff. Like when, when the creator of The Hustle, uh, Van McCoy, dies, he destroys a, a record of The Hustle on air and gets fan mail for it. Wow. Like it turns ugly. Yeah, that's nasty. It's vicious. This all kind of comes to a head. You know, he, he was asking listeners to protest disco. Like, you know, the village people came through and then he asked listeners to basically protest the show or like uh. get, you know, people who won t- tickets to like throw stuff at the stage. Like, it's just really, really ugly stuff. This all comes to a head on July 12th, 1979. There's a double header between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers that night. Okay. And because he's at a radio station, he gets a, a promo set up yeah. called Disco Demolition Night. 
and he promises listeners that if they bring down a disco record to be destroyed on the field between the two games, they can get in for 98 cents. Whoa. There's a rich history of baseball promos going terribly wrong, by the way. (laughs) Um, This is one of many of those. Basically, by the fifth inning of the first game, people are chucking records onto the field. It's, It's mayhem. It's really, really bad. They're getting fired up. 70,000 people show up for that game. Oh my. Oh wow. Not, not all necessarily followers of Dahl, but, but the stadium holds 55,000. Oh. There's 15,000 people milling around outside. There's more stuck on the freeway trying to get to the ballpark. Wow. At least 10,000 of them are there explicitly for Disco Demolition Night. Between the games, Dahl comes out onto the well, comes out to center field. Yeah, there are fifty thousand disco records in a pile with a bunch of fireworks in the middle. Dolls in military fatigues, and he blows up these records. Shards of records everywhere. Records don't break clean, man. No, it's it's the final. Kind of, it shatters. It's kind of like glass. Yeah. When this thing goes off, the crowd goes ballistic storm the field wow it takes like riot cops to get them all cleared out 39 people are arrested how have i never heard of this the the second game is forfeited like the white Sox have to have to forfeit the game yeah it's unplayable the field is a mess yeah people are like it's 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 bonkers wow something switched in the collective consciousness of the nation after this moment. It's not as though Steve Dahl single-handedly killed disco, but there was a moment of like, what's wrong with disco if this many people hate it this much? Yeah. And here's the thing. The thing about music of a subculture is that what you can hang on to is the identity that goes along with it, right? Yeah. But there's no subculture that explicitly owns disco anymore in fact that's kind of the problem with disco at this point and it's something that we talked about at the beginning Mm -hmm. it's indefensible as cool you can hang on to unpopular music if it's cool but coolness wears off yeah yeah and by 1979 everyone liked disco Mm -hmm. and that makes it uncool to like disco ah and i mean this is more speculation than anything because we're talking about taste and we're talking yeah. about taste on a collective level, a yeah, large yeah, yeah. collective level. But what I can tell you as like hard data is that in July of 1979, when this happened, six of the top 10 songs on Billboard were disco. Mm-hmm. By September, zero. Wow. Something changed. People abandoned disco. Hmm. Something else big happens and we don't have time to really get deep into this today because it's it's a whole topic in and of itself but the one group that doesn't abandon disco immediately is lgbtq folk yeah but what does happen is that in the early 80s uh the aids crisis begins yeah the newest gay disco in in new york the saint was extremely exclusive very high-end gay people only yeah gay men only yeah often white gay men only yeah and it was like extremely expensive to get in. Like memberships were going for thousands of dollars on the black market. Mm-hmm. The club was ravaged so badly in the early days of AIDS that before it actually had a name, it was known as the Saints Disease after the club. Uh, so many of its members died yeah. in such a short amount of time. 
And there's this really difficult thing that happens in the early 80s, which is LGBTQ folk finally have visibility, right? Yeah. There's this moment in 1975 where, like, there are articles being run that are basically like, gay culture is the new cool. Like, there is this moment of, like, it's it's arrived, right? Yeah. We're here. And, like, yeah, you have, like, religious groups in the late 70s railing against disco saying, you know, oh, you know, this is being produced by by gay musicians and it has secret gay messages Mm -hmm. buried within it for our kids to listen to. And it's like, they're not that secret. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's, it's right out there. Um, but like, you know, it's not that that kills it. It's, it's the, 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 you know, the core demographic, the, the, the originators of disco start dying in droves. Dry dies off. Yeah. And what's harder is that there's this, there's this contingency of people within the gay community who are going, look, it's not that hard to figure out that this is sexually transmitted. Maybe we need to be more careful. Yeah. And uh, an answer to that within the, the, the gay community going, what are you talking about? We've been, you know, repressing this for so long. We're finally free. Like, what are you, yeah. you're just trying to hold us back. Yeah. This is puritanism. And it takes a long time to get a handle on what exactly is going on. There's not a lot of support from, you know, health authorities, things yep. like that. And, you know, gay communities, especially in large urban centers, but, but you know, everywhere are... are really hit hard by this crisis a lot Mm -hmm. of a lot of men died uh very very quickly and a lot of discos just sort of shut down preemptively as like a precautionary public health measure yeah you know because they didn't know they didn't know exactly why this was happening yeah and it was kind of like well we're we're sick of our clientele dying and we don't want to be you know, in any way responsible for that. Yeah. A lot of clubs shut down for this reason over the early eighties. And, you know, as much as the resurgence of classic rock has something to do with it, so does the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And, and that sort of bookends a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the, in, in the, uh, the early episode with Stonewall. Yeah. You know, disco is sort of in, in one way of framing it, disco is this pop music movement that happens between you know the psychedelic rock of the 60s and the heavy metal of the 80s right yeah um in 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 very specifically the united states and it's kind of this thing that's like ah we don't talk about that it was kind of it was kind of cheesy you know everybody hates it now we all pretend no one liked it but in another way of looking at this disco is what happens in between stonewall and the AIDS crisis yeah. for specifically the LGBTQ community. It's this period of a little over a decade where it's like, we don't have to be as afraid. Yeah. And it had never really existed before. And in a lot of ways, hasn't quite existed in the same way since, mm-hmm. which makes it a kind of a, like a really sad thing. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's lots of ways that we can talk about disco, right? Like there's, there's, there's so many different framings because yeah. it meant so many things to so many different people. That being said, that's also part of its downfall, right? When, when disco is popular with so many people, so many opposite types of people can put all their negative feelings about that type of person onto disco. Onto the thing that they liked rather than the person. Yeah, You know, you it, you know, in the early 1980s, second wave feminism is kind of imploding with yeah. this idea of like, well, how do we approach, you know, sexual liberation? Yeah. Yeah. We got the pill at the beginning of the 60s and that opens up a lot of opportunities for us, but it also mm-hmm. opened us up to a lot of sexual exploitation yep. by uh, powerful people who tried to use that to their own advantage you yeah. know look at you know uh well stuff like the manson family in the late 60s right yep. where where these ideas of free love are like turned towards uh really patriarchal uh, oppressive um uh, systems right yeah 
and and there's this sort of thing where it's like well disco is just you know one side is saying well you know disco is just like uh, uh, facilitating this yeah the other side is saying disco isn't doing enough to liberate women it's enforcing mm-hmm. standard uh, uh gender roles through the you know like there's still like guys have to go and ask the girls to dance like there's a lot of that stuff yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you get the same thing uh you get the same thing along economic divides right like yep. disco becomes very exclusive you have to have all the right clothing or what are you doing here yeah. you're not allowed into the club and it's kind of like well why are you making music and dancing so exclusive yeah it's kind of weird especially from the place it started right? exactly yeah exactly um you know along racial lines along so yep. like there's there's all this stuff that kind of factors in yeah and it's kind of like well disco ends up being the scapegoat for all of it and mm-hmm. all of a sudden they stop making disco records and mm-hmm. yeah, they start making dance records. Yep. But that's not disco. No, sir. We're not calling that disco anymore. Disco is Disco's basically dead. poison. You can't put disco on anything or it won't sell. Yeah. Um, you know, but what you do get is stuff like Michael Jackson and Madonna yeah. and Prince, yeah. which is definitely not disco. Definitely not disco. <laughs> you get stuff like the punk movement. Yeah. You know, Bands like Blondie. Yeah. Let's uh, let's check out a Blondie track real quick. You know, punk band Blondie, punk the opposite of of disco. Polar opposite of disco. Punk hates disco. Punk really hates disco. You know, uh, there there was this like very much this like image of punk being the anti-disco. But like, yeah. I mean, come on. That is. It's a disco track. It, that's totally disco. It's 100% a disco track. In in Europe, there's not as much of a, you don't get the same hard backlash against disco. And mm-hmm. so there is still like Euro disco, like dance music in in Europe continues very like heavily disco uh, influenced. It's not hidden in the same way as it is in like, for example, house music, which comes out, uh, comes up in Chicago, which was, I think the original definition was uh, whatever music we play at our house. Um, Like a, like a meaning a club. Like it was just like one DJ started calling it that. Um, But like, it's, it's still like four on the floor dance music. Yeah. That's just like a more of a movement towards techno. Right. But we don't call it disco. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how much disco we're taking. It's not disco. In the UK, you get stuff like New Wave, right? Yeah. Which doesn't have as hard a, you know, anti-disco turn, right? No. Because if you listen to something like, uh, for example, Blue Monday by New Order. Yeah. I'm sorry. It is a disco track. It's a disco track. It is absolutely. You know, like those those New Order bands or those New Wave bands are absolutely heavily disco oriented Mm -hmm. uh disco influenced and then you know as as music continues to splinter in the 80s you get well here before we do that i want to play you a a a disco track real quick okay i actually really like this song it's called (laughs) uh it's called good times by chic So, uh, do you know that bass track? I totally know that bass track. Where do you know that bass track from? (laughs) I said a hip hop, the hippie, the hippie. It's Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. It absolutely is. It's hip hop. (laughs) 
I said a hip hop, the hip it, the hip it, the hip hip hop. You don't stop, rock it out, baby, bubble to the boogity bang bang, the boogie to the boogity beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat, and me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I'd like to say hello. Or rather, hip-hop is disco. And here's the thing about hip-hop. Of course it's a natural uh, extension, at least Mm -hmm. early 80s hip-hop, of of disco. Because what is early hip-hop? It's party music. Yeah. It's being DJed. It is street music. It's afternoon music. Yeah. I I heard an interview from Questlove recently who called it afternoon music, which is just such a good description of early hip-hop. I really loved that. Um, It's this idea of like the like the block party right yeah and it's it's somebody djing stuff for dancing to for being part of a community with yeah. you know like it's 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 a not to mention the records were super easily available yes and that's true but here's the thing if disco sucked so bad there were so many other disco or there were so many other types of records that you could sample from and still rap over that's true there is no restriction whatsoever in fact that's kind of the point of hip-hop there's no yeah. restriction of what you sample yeah the fact that Beastie Boys did Walk This Way by Aerosmith kind of demonstrates what you could do if you really wanted to. But which track do you like better? Uh, I like Rapper's Delight better. Right? <laughs> so much better. And even if you don't like the rapping on it, which I kind of get, it's it's very like, it's very cheesy. Was it Donald Glover who described early rap as... I went to the hat store today and I caught myself a hat. Ha ha. Ha ha. That's, that's the one. It does. It, it feels like that's a direct attack on... Uh, rapper's delight but maybe maybe not direct but it does kind of feel that way doesn't it it, it does but the thing is that baseline is so much better oh yeah it's taken because it's good mm-hmm. it's taken because it makes people dance yeah it's taken because like you know those these songs are they do have a very dated energy to them like a lot of them are quite dated Mm -hmm. but pieces of them are so timeless and so flexible that they can so easily be slid into other genres that you don't even really necessarily realize that you're listening to disco yeah and you know normally i don't really take hi101 all that modern but like when you look at pop music these days like the amount of disco that's threaded through there is absolutely unreal it's right? huge yeah it's, it went for good reason i mean i'm sorry four on the floor works it just it, it gets totally people, works. it gets people dancing you look at rave culture in the 90s mm-hmm. what are you listening to there you're listening to heavy bass you're listening to four on the floor beats yeah you're taking lots of drugs you're feeling yourself in the crowd mm-hmm. right like it's disco and i i can't remember where i saw it, but i saw somebody talking about basically the reason that rave music doesn't get bigger for longer is because the people who like raves don't want it to be the next disco they don't want to get it overly well known and commercialized and turned yeah. into this joke of a music uh genre and and and, and take it away. collapse yeah right like that's absolutely what would happen yeah that's kind of totally. what did happen to the music they were playing in raves yeah you know it's it's i don't know there's this cycle of coolness right mm-hmm. you saw it in the clubs as as you know the hottest new gay clubs were found by everybody else and then yeah. abandoned by the the clientele who had made them cool in the first place to a yeah. new club you saw with the music as stuff that was like really cool and underground got mixed for dance and then stuff got made specifically for discos and then stuff that wasn't supposed to be for disco like fifth of beethoven came out (laughs) and it was like oh no this is terrible what's happened we want to go back to the good old days there's this hipster vibe right i listened to disco before it was cool and 
you know, that's, that's tough. Like we've seen that in music everywhere, but like you don't have the option with disco to go back to it, at least without some space yeah, and some plausible deniability, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's got this cultural spot of schlockiness while still kind of denying the fact that schlockiness has a place in culture. Totally does. Sometimes you don't want to think too hard about the stuff you're consuming. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to hear somebody say, you make me feel mighty real over and over across over top of like a really good beat. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just want to find somebody for one night. Sometimes you just want to do a lot of drugs. (laughs) And like, there's kind of, there's a spot for that in disco that isn't necessarily afforded in a lot of other types of music. Yeah. You know, nobody listening to music, uh, no, nobody listening to disco cared that the instruments weren't real. No. In fact, they preferred it that way. There's this like, this sleekness to it, right? Mm -hmm. Drum machines. Yeah, no, they got no soul to them. That's the point. They are a clock. They are a metronome. Yeah. They allow you to dance lockstep with everybody else. You know, disco records even kind of all, they all sort of homogenize around 120 BPM yep. just to make it easier to mix from one song from to one another. From one song to the other, yeah. Record uh, labels were putting out pre-mixed sides of albums. Gloria Gaynor was actually the first person to put out an entirely mixed side of an album. Hmm. Like basically girl talk style yeah where it's just like a bunch of stuff mixed together so that the dj doesn't have to doesn't but it makes it to. sound like they're doing a really good job mixing and yeah. this became really popular because not every dj can mix all that well <laughs> and some of these clubs as we talked about are in tiny towns with like not that many people and kind yeah. of bad equipment yeah and you want something that still sounds good yeah you know it's 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 this accessible fun uh genre that sort of was so much of its time that you know i've I've seen people kind of pointing to like well you know reagan was elected in 1980 and there goes disco kind of thing where it's kind of like well is this correlation or causation that we're talking about yeah. here did did the country actually become uh that much more conservative and how much of that is is uh you know how much of that affects disco or mm-hmm. like this thing that's happening around the same time or same. you know you don't you don't want to get too broad like disco Disco has this habit of like really pulling in weird takes. <laughs> um, we talked about Stonewall. Yeah. We talked about Judy Garland briefly. Yeah. She died the day before Stonewall. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I wasn't. There's there's this whole genre of, of media uh, kind of linking the two things together. And that's like, yeah. that's really an attractive idea. That's a compelling idea. It's very it's, romantic, but... It's got nothing to do with the raid, really. No. That We've got that straight from the mouths of the people who started chucking bricks Mm -hmm. it's not the reason for it and and i think disco kind of does that same thing at certain points right yeah where it's it's like well no there's a lot of broader stuff like this is musical taste this isn't the thing we can just point to and say this is the reason it started this is the reason it stopped it's easy to talk about the night music died uh, the the night disco died with you know steve doll blowing up records on the (laughs) like that's not what kills it really but it is very visible, but yeah. You know, it's it's this it's this whole broader thing. People kept dancing. People kept going to yeah. clubs. Clubs never went away. Nope. Dance music never went away. Music made specifically for dancing too never went away. The brand disco kind of went away. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. But it still says something about the way people were feeling about the seventies in general and about the disco trend in particular. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's worth considering too. Yeah. Um 
this whole topic is a bit of going back and forth of like, well, don't don't think it's too specific, but don't think it's too general either. Like there's yeah, there's a lot of self-correction, there's a lot of contradiction. Yeah. But you know, here we are. I think that's mostly what I want to say about disco today. We said a lot. Yeah. We talked a lot. Yeah. But that's okay. I I I'm really glad we did this topic. Yeah. I learned a lot about it. It was even more interesting than I was expecting. Uh, what did you think? Tell me tell me how your experience of talking about disco went. Um, that was awesome. Uh, Great. We did focus a lot more on uh, on LGBT culture than I thought, but mm-hmm. like for a great reason. Um, mm-hmm. any, any questions? Like anything outstanding in your mind where it's kind of like, hey, what about this? No, not really. Okay. Um, well, that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah, I thought we would talk about ABBA a little bit more. I mean, yeah, we we there's a lot of artists that we kind of breezed right past, right? Yeah, totally. I was, but I was really interesting. Their music is really interesting. Yeah, the fact that every song they wrote is in C is really interesting. Yeah, um, you know, stuff like that. But but what you see with ABBA is like very like Euro disco. That's yeah, very definitely. like pop disco. Yeah, it is back to this idea of like the radio single. Yeah, it's shorter songs. It's not that it's not meant for dancing to, but it's also meant for radio stations to play for selling. Yeah, um, I saw I saw a comment somewhere that was basically along the lines of like, music is a communal experience in every human culture, and that listening to music as a solitary endeavor is the anomaly. It's a very very hmm. strange symptom of twentieth century technology. And that a lot of what disco does in the 1970s is take people who have become very used to listening to things on the radio. Yeah. Listening to things on jukeboxes. Yeah. And present to them, especially when talking about LGBTQ folk, for the first time for a lot of them, Mm -hmm. this quintessential human experience of connection through music and dance. Music is designed as communication. Music is designed for dancing too. Yeah. And sitting there in your you know egg chair with the binaural sound you know all of that stuff listening to prog rock is cool don't get me wrong that's a really interesting experience but it's not fundamentally the way music has been baked into our genes in a certain way into our uh collective unconscious in another way Mm -hmm. it's not the experience that i think is 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 closest to our hearts if you want to put it that way yeah um and that's not to say it isn't fulfilling but the ability to just sort of cut loose and dance with other people yeah is something special and and yeah and you know i think there's a reason that it got as popular as it did as fast as it did and especially with the people that it got popular with first Mm -hmm. so yeah I think that's a good place to leave disco. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. I had a really good time talking about this. Thanks for having me. Disco never died. Not really. It's evolved and been given other names, but the fundamentals are still around. What makes disco unique isn't the pop-friendly dance music or the cheesy moves at weddings, but the way it interacted with a number of social movements in the 1970s, as marginalized groups began asserting themselves in American culture on their own terms. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit HI101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. 
For example, in this episode, I said that we didn't really have the language to accurately address the idea of transgender in the late 1960s. That's not true at all. Uh, what I was trying to get at was a poor general understanding of the concept by the general public, but while our understanding and terminology have evolved, what I actually said was inaccurate. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blusky, and this has been HI101. Hi.